for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business, Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. And welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. This week, I'm talking to Katie Walton from company Make Real Progress. And it's a topic that uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing because it's all about learning and development. We've both got a background in learning and development, but Katie is a real expert in transferring that knowledge onto other people. And what we thought we'd talk about in this podcast is, um, you know, if you're an HR professional, people still expect you to sort out training, sort out learning and development. And you may not feel that that's your specialist subject if you are um, a generalist, an HR generalist. So Kate is going to give you some top tips as part of this podcast as to how you can feel more comfortable in that position. But before we do that, Katie, do you want to explain and, and introduce yourself? I'd love to. So thank you very much for the intro and thanks very much for having me on as well, Lucinda. As you mentioned, yeah, a huge range of background in learning and development, OD, talent development, coaching, it's my absolute passion. I love it. And it's turned into a hobby as well. You know, when people ask you the question, what are your hobbies? My hobby is learning <laughs> for learning's sake. Yeah. But I've been running my own business, Make Real Progress, for three years now. And as part of that process, part of that journey, I offer up learning and development for corporates. But I've found that I'm getting more and more passionate about helping HR, L&D and coaches to deepen their L&D skill sets. It is something that people feel um, sometimes a bit lost. It's, it's almost, I used to think um, we've both been in-house L&D people, haven't we? Yeah. But, um, not everyone in HR kind of got L&D and the same way as I didn't necessarily get low, large parts of HR. It was slightly different. I used to say to my HR colleagues that I thought we, I was lucky because I got to do the fun bit and they get to do the really hard stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, in terms of as a high level, what would you say, you know, when you're working with HR professionals, what is it that they find challenging about L&D or, or dealing with L&D issues? There are so many elements. I think one of the core cool things that sticks out for me is that understanding of what L&D is actually capable of. So I think for many people, it's not just HR professionals, it could be anybody outside the people profession too. They may have only ever experienced L&D as a trainer who's delivering a workshop and they actually see that that's the limit of the the possibility so I think there's a lot of educating to do about what the art of the possible is with learning and development and ultimately the way I like to describe it is our job is there to help raise the performance raise engagement levels increase retention so it plays a fundamental part in the the whole of the people plan yeah, so it's seeing it more strategically in terms of as, yeah. as being an enabler. And I think that's also a really interesting point um, in terms of the fact that 
do we feel like we've got to have a magic wand or some sort of magic solution for it sometimes then and and they don't necessarily know what the solution is and and i think certainly my experience was that that would be an area that was sometimes tricky for um, HR professionals and we were talking before we came online of that classic where somebody comes up to you and says oh I need a xyz course for my person and you could easily go okay let me give you xyz course but that wouldn't actually solve the issue strategically or overall there's a whole sort yeah. of diagnosis piece isn't it do you help people with that I do absolutely and it's about really making that shift from being an order taker and just accepting what you're told and doing a little bit more diagnosis, as you said, performance consulting, digging a little bit deeper and understanding, well, what are the different factors involved? I remember quite clearly the couple of examples that stick in my mind. So one was a manager who'd come to me directly because they wanted some support with their team's report writing. And actually in conversation, it turned out there was only one or two people that had a challenge. So a course wouldn't have been the most useful, the most um, efficient use of time. And actually it was much more because the manager was finding it hard to give feedback. So a quick conversation about how to structure a good feedback conversation and the problem was just solved. But I used to have those problems come not just from managers directly, but filtered through the HR partners as well, because they would have probably 30, 40 things to cover in a, in a half hour catch up with the manager and often it's the, just the easiest thing in the world for people to say, or, well, to solutionize on the yeah. job and then think, right, okay, L&D can just run this and fix it. So I think you're absolutely right. It's something that I, I see all of the time. And I really want to help encourage HR professionals to think about how they can dig a little bit deeper and just the kinds of things that play into people not performing at their best. It is interesting. I know that HR professionals, if someone if they said, oh, someone's not isn't a performer or there's a problem with someone, they would ask questions and diagnose it in those circumstances. What might be the cause? What's you know, what give us some examples of it? So we would do it in that circumstance. So I don't know whether it's a lack of confidence as to why we wouldn't necessarily do the same thing with training. And of course, it, there is the whole risk that then you go out and say, I need XYZ report writing course. That's mm. that classic thing where I'm sure you and I both had that experience where we've had people rock up on a course that actually isn't suitable for them and they're not yes. motivated to be there either. So it's not a good use of anyone's time or money um, no. if they understand what we're trying to achieve in, in terms of it. Yeah, and it completely devalues the purpose. It devalues the L&D professional if they're put in, the, in that situation. It devalues the HR's recommendation for a training course. So I, I think you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, it's definitely training is not a panacea in any shape or form. And that's that was one of my favorite words, actually, when I was an in-house partner, just explaining it's it's not a one size fits all. It's not a magic cure all. No. And of course, and, and, and realistically, I think I don't know whether businesses do less training certainly I think there's more of a mix of ways of learning now in terms of whether you've got yeah. digital and vendor etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's also that whole sense that actually um, you know it's not realistic that you send someone on a one day or a two day or a week-long training course and that's necessarily going to give them everything they need either is it um I mean do you help people work with sort of how you think about you know putting together a whole package or thinking about more um rounded ways in terms of which people can learn or develop specific skills yeah we're seeing a real shift actually so especially it was really marked markedly different post-covid so pre-covid you'd see a lot more uh one day two day three day four day trading programs then 
during COVID, people suddenly realized when they shifted virtually, well, actually, you can't just shift a whole two day training program and put it online and have the, the right outcomes. And you started to see people think differently, at a rate that we hadn't seen before. And actually, I think that people are now starting to realize more how we learn outside of work is typically very different to how we might learn inside work. And so I think the secret is to try and help everybody who's still stuck in the rut of thinking one day, two day, three day training programs is the only answer, trying to get up to speed. And I see people in typically learning and development professionals in very large organizations, they're way ahead of that curve. They recognize this 10, 15 years ago, but sometimes especially if that we're talking about HR generalists who only have training as a small part of their role, they're not necessarily as up to speed with modern learning practices. So that's absolutely why I want to help encourage people to think about is all of these different ways that we learn and how you can start blending the learning that you're offering out as well. I, and I think that is interesting in terms of the, the switch during COVID. I mean, in terms of lots more things were seen as it was acceptable to learn online but it wasn't the same and it's I think it lends itself more to knowledge transfer than skill transfer personally but I mean from that point of view the, the reference you just made that those those HR professionals or L&D professionals in large organizations are thinking differently what would be an example could you particularly thinking that I've got lots of listeners who are perhaps an HR department of one so therefore hmm. the L&D department of, you know, in relatively small business let's say that they have lots of hats what what sort of examples have you got that they could think differently or think more like one of those sort of full-time um, roles? That's a great question. And it could be anything from um, having VR headsets. So I know a few years ago when I was in an in-house role, we were starting to think differently about present, uh, presenting, presentation skills. So we had VR headsets and we were experimenting with how you could use those so you could get the experience of presenting without actually having to go on a program or to stand up on stage for the first time. So it could be anything like that to having things like action learning sets, having actors involved for some forum theatre. Um, it could be a whole digitised learning journey. It could be having a, a learning experience platform where people, a bit like, you know, with um, Amazon, where it makes the recommendations about if you like this, then perhaps you're interested in that then, you know, learning experience platforms that can deliver that kind of service, um, experimenting with artificial intelligence and chatbots so people can put the most commonly asked questions in and be signposted directly to a chunk of learning content that's right for them. So there's so much out there, but it's very difficult, I think, especially when you were talking about HR who are working in smaller companies that don't necessarily have that budget or that insight or you know, people to bounce ideas off it makes it really quite challenging, I think. Yes, doesn't it? Because actually that's one of the things I was thinking. It's interesting because we are used to going on to uh, I don't know, YouTube or, or wherever our own out of work experiences. These these algorithms and things sort of learn our preferences and feed things at us. But, um, you know, in terms of learning experience platforms, I mean, I, I think if you're an individual HR professional, they, that would be quite intimidating because when I've looked at these sort of things, you need to have a level of L&D understanding almost to program it in in the first place for your audience, don't you? So it's a, yeah, I, think so. So I guess there may be ones that are already curated out there that things that people can access that are suitable um, from that. I like your idea of the VR headsets. So what would you do? Have an audience in your VR headset so you, you feel yeah. like you're presenting. 
yeah you actually feel like you're on stage and you can see people in front of you and it gives you instant feedback on your eye contact so are you making eye contact with everyone in the audience are you using filler words are you hesitating how is your pitch and your speed so it's instant feedback but actually I don't if you know I know we're going off track a little bit but you can actually do that on PowerPoint now so you can actually record yourself and get feedback yeah through PowerPoint yeah didn't know that that's another useful little snippet Katie as well (laughs) I tell you already that's great um I've gone up I forgot what I was going to ask you there now as it's gone up but that is quite an interesting angle so uh, in in terms of um I'm I'm an HR professional let's say uh I've yeah, I've, I've looked at various things that we can go out and, and do and I'm accessing things and we're getting people using PowerPoint. Uh, but I've been asked to build a training course for somebody or intern. I need to run one, whatever it might be, whatever the topic might be. Um, how would you help me think about that? Because I think that's something that's quite intimidating for people not to just do a PowerPoint slides and talk at people. What, what recommendations would you have for people in that situation? I think first of all is just finding out what's the outcome. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to shift as a result of the the potential training program? And then perhaps dig a little bit deeper and find out, well, who are the participants? What's their experience level? What are they um what are they doing on a day-to-day basis? What's their world like? Because you can make a massive difference from understanding the background and the context of the individuals that you're working with. And so when you when you're a lot clearer on who the participants are, what the learning outcomes are, you could maybe start thinking a little bit differently. So say, for example, if you've got Bob, who's in a manufacturing unit, doesn't have access to a laptop, um, has managed people for 20 years, you might be thinking differently about development for Bob than Andrea, who's working in an office, is digital, very tech savvy and hasn't been managing people for very long at all. And maybe actually the right thing isn't a course that brings the two of them plus others together. Maybe the right thing is something that's very individual for both of them. Maybe it's about chunking content differently so they access it in different ways. Maybe for Bob, it's something that's written that he can reflect on. Maybe for Andrea, it might be something that's tech and very immersive and maybe very much more bite-sized. So if you, I mean, that's an interesting one as well in terms of, so you have these different approaches and and I'm not sure this is just, I think this is a challenge for everybody in a learning development role. Mm. People say they want training or they want the outcome, but, oh, you, you know, you give Andrea the digital content, how motivated is she to necessarily take it on? You know, and equally, you know, I've forgotten what the gentleman's name was, but, you know, will Bob read the reflection document or, or not? Because, I mean, you've described yeah. yourself as someone who's passionate about learning, but mm. not everybody is. Lots of people kind of want the shortcuts and they're not necessarily motivated. So any tips as to how people, how you manage that? I think sometimes it's about having just alternative provision for people and give people choice. So one thing that I tend to do after workshop, I mean, I know I've talked about workshops and programs not being the only answer. I do deliver a lot of workshops and programs, but they're also scaffolded with other things. So one thing that I do, for example, after a workshop is I give people options to say, here's some things that you can read here's some things you can watch here's a podcast that you could listen to here are some practical things that you can do and put into practice and sometimes it's about scaling up those levels so here's a little a little snippet if you've got two minutes read this or watch this or do this 
if you've got an hour and you want to investigate in more detail, do this, this and this and this. So it's just giving people pathways so they can find their own way through it. And the different, and I guess it, yeah, yeah, I guess it's just about thinking a little bit differently. I don't think one size fits all. And I think sometimes we're doing ourselves, the participants and the businesses disservice if we just think, right, here's here's a one size fits all thing that everybody goes through in exactly the same way. It just doesn't work. So you're getting people to think, well, what we're saying is, is, is you're, you're recognising that training course is not a panacea, but we still run them. Um, you're yeah. getting people to think more broadly. It's not just about a chalk and talk or as that's a very old term, isn't it? Um, it's still uh, very relevant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not just a talk at people type thing. Um, thinking about different ways and scaffolding. I like that concept in terms of providing other ways in which you reinforce that learning, which totally makes sense from a point of view of actually retaining um, any knowledge if I'm um, still this this individual this uh, trainer, I'm coming let's say I've come on your your course that you run is it called build it quickly That's uh, I know what the outcome is that I want to achieve through my training course what sort of steps or what sort of process would you take me through to kind of create my my content or to think through how I'm going to make it flow I think, first of all, it's about getting the ideation. Out. So getting all of the ideas down, because what I see is a lot of people stuck in overwhelm saying, well, I need to cover this, 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 this and this. And they try and shoehorn it into the time that they have, whether it's 90 minutes, an hour, three hours or a whole day. So I kind of give permission to get it all down, get all of the ideas down, don't lose them. But then let's focus on what must we have what should we have and what could we have and start to prioritize and then when you've got everything prioritized you can start to think well actually if we must have this content what could it look like could it be input could it be an activity could it be something different so you start with that structure of getting everything down narrowing it down prioritizing it and then thinking about if these are things that we should have, do they have to be on the program? Could they be after the program? And if we then reflect back on the people who you're running the program on the workshop for, how might that look for them? What might they like? Might they like to read something, watch something, listen to something? So it's quite a process that you go through, but it does start with just get it all down on paper. Let's have a look and see what your ideas are. And so once they've got those ideas, they've got all that content, um, how do you help them then structure it? I'm trying to think how I write a training course, to be honest. I think I chunk it into things. I think I think in terms of the time, I, it's almost yeah. like I modularize it. I don't know. How, what, what would you recommend? Well, one of my top tips is just however, however long that you've got, whether it's a 90 minute session or a whole day session, I, I literally draw on a piece of A4 paper and I put it into quadrants so I just have those four different quadrants and then I start to build out from there, start to think about, OK, so what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, what comes fourth? Doing it on post-its helps you to visually see and be able to swap things around so you can make sure that the sequence and the flow is right and feels right, because there are some things that naturally come before others. So, for example, if I'm running a workshop or a program on coaching skills, before we get into something like the grow coaching technique, then we might be thinking about listening and questioning first before we get there, because it, there's a natural flow to it. Yeah. So if we're starting off with all of the ideas, focusing on what we must have, and then thinking about what that flow might look like, and then thinking in terms of chunks of time. 
So I've got my my flow and I've got my chunks of time. Do you then talk about things like I was thinking, the other things I would think about are things like um, maintaining energy or styles absolutely. of delivery? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because these are things as an L&D professional, and you'll know this, Lucinda, you kind of know it quite instinctively. You know there's going to be a dip in energy after lunch. You know that energy levels are going to dip right down near the end of the day. There's also other things that you need to be thinking about, like how do you start really productively at the beginning and capture people's attention so they want to be there and they want to participate and they want to listen. And then at the end of the day, how do you finish with a bang so it just doesn't kind of at the end so people feel inspired to go out and do something different so we talk about all of those kinds of things how do you manage the peaks and flows during the day how do you notice in the room when people and and when I talk about the room I talk about either the physical room that you're in together or the virtual room if you're running something virtually what are the signals and the cues that you could be picking up and I also really hugely advocate on even if you've mapped out your session, just having things in your kit bag as well. So knowing that if the, if you're running a session in the afternoon and it really isn't landing for people, have an alternative that you can swap in. Have an understanding of the timing. So how long is it going to take for a group discussion, for example? How long should you allow for that? What happens if it overruns? What happens if it doesn't land and, it, and people just aren't engaging with it? So I help people to build their their kit bags for all of this. So when I'm helping them build a workshop, I'm also helping them think much bigger than that as well about all of these different options and possibilities. And those are interesting points, aren't they? The whole um, how long to allow for things um, always takes way longer than you think it's going to as soon as you get any kind doesn't of interaction, it? doesn't it? So you kind of think, oh, go and talk, go and talk for 10 minutes. No way, you know, people haven't started. I think it's the same in terms of if you do training on, on um, Zoom or something and you put people into a breakout room, in theory, they might have had time to think about it. But there's this whole sort of you've got to get into the zone. What is it we're here to do? What do we need to? What's the question again? There's that whole sort of sort of wasted time at the start of any breakout where people have to acclimatise. Um, if if they then go on to do it. So those things are are interesting. So yeah, I can get that. So time management, I think that's a brilliant tip as well, having something else up your sleeve. There's something about being flexible, isn't there, really? You can have yeah. a beautifully planned out day, um, but sometimes you might think, I need to spend a little bit longer on this, or for whatever reason, you have to be able to, you know, be spontaneous in a way that reshapes things in some way or move something around to be able to get that outcome and read that room and that energy. What, what aspects when you when you're working with um, you know people who are predominantly HR people as opposed to you know more experienced L and D people, what chan- what things do they find the hardest? Do you know what strikes me in all of the conversations I've had is even if people have had any L and D training in the past, it's usually deeply theoretical. So it might be like a deep dive into adult learning theory, for example. And what they're crying out for when they're speaking to me is. Well, practically, how do I do this? Yes. How do I how do I start a conversation? How do I close a conversation down? How do I add in an activity? What kinds of activities work? Are icebreakers a thing anymore? Do we use them? Do we not use them? So it's much more about the deeply practical stuff. Mm-hmm. And I ran a poll. Oh, it was January this year. And I had one and a half thousand HR professionals reply. And all of them were HR generalists who also had to train as part of their role. And 74% of them said that they had had no L&D training at all. 
So they were struggling even with the concept of what does good learning look like? You know, it's not in my world. It's not on my radar. Yes, I'm a people professional. Yes, I'm good at engaging, working with people. But I just don't have the foggiest clue practically how to do it. And that's when I see people default to I'm going to get 150 slides on something like disciplinary process and walk people through it because they just don't they just don't know or have the capacity or time to think about how could I do this differently and that's what I want to help people fast track I want them to have the ideas so that and a blueprint really so that they can create workshops when workshops are the best thing but do it quickly and do it really really well I think that's I mean that's a a great tip because I often think that um it takes longer in planning to think about how to make an exercise work which will deliver that is almost um easier just to tell people if it's me, it's much harder to to um help people to explore and come to that realization on their own through an activity or a learning and then to draw that out and reinforce it and make sure that everybody gets that same learning but they've got it more powerfully than you just telling and so therefore yeah. i can see why people can default back to, to slides in terms yeah. of, oh sorry I was just going to say it's that experiential it's that hands-on experiencing things that make a difference and time and again I'll have participants say to me at the end actually their one light bulb moment happened when they were standing on a piece of paper in a room waiting for instructions or something like that it just helps to land the point. Because actually that's the whole thing it's also a learning it's quite meta I guess it's learning for us as a trainer you have to deliver the training to learn how what things work and what doesn't and, and to do, do that to have that experience um, yeah. I was just going to go back to that bl- term your blueprint blueprint term which I think is your process isn't it for taking people through to design design um uh course so we've talked about them thinking about getting all their ideas down you've got this nice thing about the, the box where what comes first so getting a, a logical flow we talked a bit about sort of maintaining energy uh making a balance of experiential starting you know powerfully ending with a bang anything else that you'd say that would, would go out that be useful for people listening to this podcast that might fit within a blueprint um it's difficult to say it's it's things like the introductions the endings so how to start well how to finish well how to follow up as well so it kind of starts before it starts the workshop that's about engaging people before the workshop even starts but it doesn't finish when it ends we also need to be thinking about what next how to follow up with people how to support them how to help them embed their learning so the blueprint goes from before the workshop helping you to create your workshop and think about what goes in there and the content and the flow. But it also then looks at after the workshop ends as well. So it takes you all the way through. And that's giving people a more complete learning experience as well, of course, because in, in terms of that reinforcement. Exactly that. I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I can totally see where these sort of things that um, are alien to, to certain people, as Alex say, if I went and jumped into to do an HR, a generalist role tomorrow, there'd be a lot of things that'd be really alien to me. Um, and uh, they're definitely skills that people can um, develop and, in terms of that. And some of it's confidence, I think, to be able to go with it and, and congruence. And of course, if you, if they, I guess if they come on your course and, and go through something like that, that gives you that confidence that you can do it. And they've had that experience of building a course that will work and they can replicate that that sort of pattern. Absolutely. And the other thing is I role model best learning practices we go through. So at the end of the program, I then have one to one feedback and support with them. And then 
the whole of the next year afterwards, we have ongoing monthly collaboration sessions so that if they're experiencing things, if they're trying things out in practice and they're not working for whatever reason, we work through that. And we help coach and guide and give ideas and support to help people overcome it because I'm absolutely passionate about workshops. They are brilliant. They have their time and place, but they're not a one and done. You know, you need to continue. So absolutely. Yeah, that sounds great. So do you want to explain, because I think, um, is that through your Progress Place um, group? Or do you want to explain if people wanted to find out more about what you do personally and maybe um, join join in any of your communities perhaps tell us for the um for the audience listening as to where they can find you absolutely so over on facebook i have a community called the progress place and the whole idea is it's where hr lnd and coaches can come together to just talk about development and there's a whole range of experience levels in there so everybody's welcome you're very welcome to follow me connecting with me on linkedin as well and when i was talking about the ongoing collaboration this is specifically for people who are previous clients who've been through the program so that we can help continue the learning so yeah and you can find out about build it quickly either on my website or through linkedin or through the progress place fabulous and we will obviously put links to those um links links to you in the uh, show notes on hruprising.com as well katie thank you so much it's a topic that i, I could definitely discuss further uh, i think we, we achieved what we set out to achieve today there so i really appreciate you coming on the hr uprising podcast thanks very much for having me lucinda an absolute pleasure i really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable if you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast. <laughs>